0: Hello, I'm Sarah Tulloch, Talking Writing's podcast manager, and this is the Talking Writing podcast.
1: From now until the end of the year, donations and new subscriptions will be acknowledged by the Talking Writing podcast and will receive a gift. Please find your subscription and donation options on this episode's Substack post. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Okay, hello everyone, I'm here, your host Neva Taliadin, for the Talking Writing Podcast. I'm also the community manager and I am so pleased to welcome today Athena Dixon, who is a poet, essayist, and editor. So she's also the author of The Incredible Shrinking Woman and her current book, which we are going to discuss today, is called The Loneliness Files published by Tin House Books. She has also received a prose fellowship from the Martha's Vineyard Institute of Creative Writing and born and raised in Northeastern Ohio. But you currently reside in Philadelphia, Philly, nowadays, right? So how are you, Athena? Welcome to Talking Writing.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm doing pretty good today. It's been an eventful two weeks, but I'm happy.
1: Yeah, and you just launched The Loneliness Files. Pretty exciting because this is a genre that I am really, you know, an anthology of essays. That's really a genre that me and a lot of our audience are really enthusiastic about. And I know your background was a poet, but it seems like your last two books were essays. I wanted to ask, like, what happened? (laughs) You know, how did you decide to publish a book of essays instead of... A
0: book of poems. How does that decision making happen? I started writing essays by kind of like circumstance. So I went through a very bad breakup and divorce. And at the time, I identified wholly as a poet. And I have a, I have a master's degree in creative writing, and my concentration was in poetry. So I always wrote poetry. And when I was going through my divorce and my breakup, I couldn't say what I needed to say in poetry. So I started writing personal essays because it gave me a lot more room to kind of like express myself. And I kind of took to the format and honestly, I've never gone back to poetry. So I have one very tiny poetry chapbook that came out in the world in 2018. But ever since then, all of my creative concentration has been on writing prose. And I'm not quite sure if I'll actually ever go back to writing poetry. I, I feel much more comfortable in prose than I ever felt in poetry, honestly.
1: Uh, I've, uh, I have known a lot of writers who transitioned from poetry to prose, and they say the same things. It's like, they're called to write in prose now, and it doesn't feel like they want to go back to poetry. In your opinion, was that, I I don't want to say it was a phase, but was that just like the next step towards finding your voice? What do you think it is about poetry that attracts younger writers as the first genre?
0: I think for me, I came up into poetry through school. I had, I was, I started off writing. I mentioned in the book that I write fan fiction. And I actually started yes. off fiction first. Junior high, I had a student teacher one semester and she taught us about poetry. And I wasn't really into it, but she started to be really, really encouraging and I got really, really deep into writing poetry because she made me feel like I could write it. And so from that point forward, I was just very interested in finding other poets who looked like me. So I I found a lot of Black poets like Nikki Giovanni and Sonia Sanchez. And I started to do a lot of open mics. And it was just like a natural progression because I I was being encouraged. And um, I never really went back to prose until I was well into my 30s. And, but I think what ended up happening is that I don't know if I'll go back to writing poetry, but the building blocks of poetry show up in my prose a lot. It does. I I approach like the page in some ways, like a poet, like I'm so concerned about what it sounds like and where the line breaks are and like plateaus and, and natural breaks and pauses. And so it, I still, I guess have the skeleton of a poet in there, but It was really, I think, a stepping stone to me being able to express myself a lot more deeply than I was doing in my poetry.
1: I think that's a very good segue to your book, The Loneliness Files. I haven't had the pleasure of reading your first book, but I had the extreme pleasure of reading The Loneliness Files. And these essays are quite lyrical in nature. It it has a a very strong lyrical um, element to them. And in fact, the way you structure them, you know, part one, part two, part three, you start off with songs, which are poems, (laughs) song poems. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you first about the structure because I'm really a nerd about developmental editing and how the genesis of a book, did the format come first in your mind or did it start as a series of articles that you thought talk to each other. How did the idea for The
0: Loneliness Files start? So the book itself, in some ways, was never meant to be a book. I started writing the very first essay in the book, Say You Will Remember Me, as a way to kind of explore the loneliness that I was feeling during the COVID lockdowns. And I just needed to write that particular essay because I was really fearful of dying alone in this apartment and nobody knowing. And so eventually, I started thinking of other ways that like loneliness manifested in my life and the decisions that I had made to get to that point in my life where I was alone in this apartment. And I started to just write more and more essays. And it probably wasn't until I got about halfway through the essays. I think there are 16 essays in the book. So when I got around eight or so, I was like, okay, this might be a book. And so I just finished out writing all the essays. I didn't think about where they fit together or how I would order them or structure them. I just wanted to get the work out. And then I, when I got to the last essay, which is um, the essay, Upon My Return, was the last essay. Yeah, returning, book. yeah. And then I started thinking, okay, how do these fit together? So originally I tried to push the book in chronological order, mm-hmm. really didn't make sense. And so I started playing around with like what essays went together. And that's how the sections started to form. I and see. then I had um, sections form, I started thinking, okay, so what's like the scope of the project? So it ended up being that the essays moved from more like a macro view to a micro view. Um, and, and the reason why that exists is because by the time you get to the last section of the book, you've learned a lot more about me and it's much more personal. So I'm trying to like drill down through these layers of loneliness until you get to the core of it, which is me and my desire to kind of reconnect with my home and my family. So that's what it ended up being. It wasn't that I... I guess I should also say I wasn't I was positive I wasn't going to write a traditional narrative arc. Um, I'm confident in my writing skills enough to know that is not my wheelhouse. I don't know I will ever write a traditional memoir. So I wanted to figure out a way to like switch the lenses and drill down into loneliness in a different way. So I went from that larger idea down to the smaller idea.
1: Yeah. And it is called like a memoir in essays. So that was what first drew me to, to really like look deeper into the loneliness files. And then you're right, the structure was really interesting. As you said, it was like macro view, like worldview, how loneliness has become an epidemic like never before. Like, yeah. can, can you imagine like how many was it? Like eight, eight deaths that were never discovered until years later, yeah. as long as like three years or four years later. Unimaginable, right? Like how, how could that happen? But that is like the epidemic that's happening now in the world. And then that's part one, right? And then part two, you talk about our presence, Mm -hmm. our loneliness in spite of our constant presence on social media. And you talk about The Truman Show, a film that I also really, really liked and have watched more than once and and then going to your personal so that when we transition to part 3 which is your personal grappling with your personal lonelinesses your questions about home do you do you belong your belongingness where do you belong now and growing up and you know the awkwardness of of meeting childhood friends again and yeah people that you knew from before it doesn't feel It's a narrative arc, but it doesn't feel as manipulated, is what I was going to say. And I didn't feel, you know how when you read, you're very conscious about which is fiction and which is nonfiction. But your essays have been very accessible in the sense that I can put myself in as if you were a protagonist and not a real person so is this style of writing something that you intentionally cultivated or has this been a
0: result of the subject matter um i probably think it's a little bit of both i think that part of it is me developing writing a fan fiction in some ways and writing the fiction that I've never sent out into the world because it allows me to create like a little bit of a distance and I know how to kind of put my voice into a story that is a little bit more universal because other people are coming into it. So I think that my my years of writing fan fiction helps with that because it's like you have to make the person at the center of that story be a, a person but just vague enough where somebody can step into that that skin. And so that's part of it. And I think another part of it is I make a very conscious decision with everything that I write to give voice to people and experiences and places who may feel that they are too quiet or too overlooked or too invisible or too voiceless, because I felt like that so often in my life that I want to be able to speak to those people in a way that they feel like they are being seen and that they're able to use me as a vessel for those feelings. So it's something that I cultivate, like I want my stories to be personal to me. But I also want to find a way for people to have an entry point into them. So I try my best to tell my own story, but also put touchstones and cultural references in a way that people can step into that story as well.
1: Yeah, that that's great. And you can really feel that in how each essay progresses. But one thing that I also noticed was the transitions are not your traditional endings mm-hmm. too, right? The essays end as they, they they make sense, but they're also not like a hard definitive, okay, this is the end of the essay. No. which Which makes it, I mean, you know, which makes you feel like, oh, there's a liminal space as you transition from, one essay to the other. And so I'm wondering, are the songs meant to be like that? Like how is the reader meant to experience your book according to you?
0: Yeah, according to me. <laughs> 10 things since the book has come out. But mainly what the, the songs are is like a little bit of a transitional space both into and out of a particular section. And my goal was to have people listen to those songs in advance of reading that particular section, not necessarily to read it while listening, like my sister did. (laughs) The the point of the songs are to create like a sonic table to set like the tone. And that was important to me because I didn't want people to kind of go into something like deprivation, which is about being in a sensory deprivation tank while listening to something a lot more frenetic. So I wanted to kind of create a sonic landscape to guide people into those particular feelings, um, to guide them into like a a blank space. So then they have like a foundation to start that particular essay or the essays in that section. Um, There was a time in an earlier iteration of the book that every essay had a song, but I found that that was too much stop and start versus just having an individual three songs for each section. And so it kind of morphed a bit, but it really is there as like a sonic table setting Mm -hmm. for each individual section.
1: I like that reference, a sonic table setting. And it really is because it's a challenge to set atmosphere in a physical book. There's no audio. Of course, you have the audio book, but the book itself, you Mm -hmm. don't have that coming with a book so it's it's so challenging especially when your essays are have a lyrical nature to it how do you make it come out and i feel like the bookmarks the bookends of the songs really clue you into that and also it's like it's a suggestion (laughs) it's not a and to your point like if you put lyrics on uh, in each chapter it might dictate Mm -hmm. like oh i'm supposed to feel that way and it's not such an organic experience, yeah. right? Like, how do you feel about that? Because a, a lot of book um, formats that I'm seeing right now, uh, especially for nonfiction, start mm-hmm. with like quotes or like poems or, or epigraphs. And traditionally, that's a no-no, right? But um, how do you feel about that as a writer?
0: I think they have their place. There's a couple of essays in the final copy of the book that the epigraphs were taken out, mainly for rights issues, but they were taken out. I think that they're, they're useful. I think that at least I give my readers credit enough for their intelligence to understand what I'm trying to handhold them versus where I'm trying to say, this is something that may inform your reading. Mm-hmm. I think when there are too many of them and they're too frequent and they're like mm-hmm. in a clunky manner, you can tell that they're trying to not engage with you in terms of the actual writing, but in like leading you exactly where they want you to be. So I think that it's, it's like almost like seasoning in a way. Like you don't want to overseason, them, but you also don't want to like, like leave it be bland. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I think that there's a time and a place for them. I'm not a person who will ever, I probably think I will never write a book without them because I like them. But <laughs> use them sparingly. Yeah. It's like almost like if you create this beautiful image within the body of a piece of work and you have all complex sentences and you never give your readers a chance to like sink into the image. It's the same thing. You bulldoze your way through all the tension Mm -hmm. and the beauty that you built up by doing that.
1: Yeah, that's a good point you know, because it's like we, we, it's not very traditional anymore, where, you know, in when I was in school, it was like, no epigraphs, you know, it's not just rights issues, but it's like, you know, the work must stand for itself. But you're right, like, now is um a generation or a time for when we have a lot of parallel references, yeah. and it's not just the work itself. So that being said, let's talk about part 2 when you dive into like social media and the currency of attention and i like what you say in part 2 where you know you like to imagine that you're not manipulated that your yeah. behavior that your that the algorithm you like to pretend that the algorithm doesn't really manipulate you and as a writer you bear it, it's so you bear witness so well to the experience of you know navigating social relationships on social media but still being isolated how did we get here do you think (laughs) like and as writers Mm -hmm. um where do we go from here with
0: social media i think that we got to where we are now because there is in some ways, not always, because everything is, there's nothing that's 100%, but I think it's easier now to fall into the illusion of connection. And so I'm of a, I'm Gen X. So I had a completely like analog childhood. And then once I hit 18, that's when I got introduced to the internet. And so my entire adult life has been online, but I think there's this illusion that wasn't there in past years where if you you had to, I think in some ways work to be connected to people online. Now it's very easy. You can hit a button, or you can double tap, or you can hit a repost button, and then that means that you're actively engaged mm. with somebody, but you're really not. It's kind of mindless, and so I think that people haven't in some ways slowed down enough to think about how the connections that they think they have are mm. an illusion. Like I could sit on like my favorite app is Instagram. I could sit on Instagram all day long and scroll and double tap and people think that I'm actively reading their posts or they think that I'm actively engaged in their lives, but I'm not, I'm just doing it because it's required. I think as writers, we have to in some ways resist the idea of brand and platform and community for the organic versions of that. I'm a big proponent of saying that I never want to be a brand. I know that I've had some criticism from some other writers who have told me that I need to be more serious about my social media presence. And I'm like, it's social media, like you're going to get me. And I'm not concerned about building a platform that is pitch perfect and polished. And I'm not concerned about having hundreds of thousands of followers or tens of thousands of followers. I'm like, I'd rather have an organic community that I'm actively socially connected to and that I can support and they can support me in kind. And I think that's where the kind of the, the tipping point has to be for writers. I think that we have been conditioned in some ways to expect that if we hit ten thousand followers on Twitter or X or whatever it is now. Um, <laughs> if get 10,000 followers, that means that somebody's going to pay attention to our proposal or an agent's going to approach us. And like, yeah, you can have 10,000 um, followers, but if only a fraction of them are engaged, what does that mean for your your book? Or what does it mean for your potential to sell? So I think we have to actively push against the idea of this illusion of connection and actually get back to the actual social aspect of social media.
1: Exactly. It's, it's, it's a difficult balance or it's a difficult push-pull where Mm -hmm. you have to reclaim your personal identity and not be reduced to a brand, right? right? Like in your book, you, on deprivation, you mentioned that this life would force me to hold fast to the small occurrences, to not tweet or post about them, but to rather hold on to a secret joy to know that all is not up for consumption Mm -hmm. because how do you, you know, like, yes, we enjoy writing, we enjoy poetry, we we enjoy books, but it's not consumption. The the enjoyment of it, there's a dynamic, there's an engagement that's different. Yeah. And what do you think about, they call this consume now, they Mm -hmm. don't ask you anymore, what are you reading? What are you listening to? They ask, "What are you consuming?" And it
0: bothers me
1: to heck. And yeah. I wanted to hear your thoughts about it as a fellow Gen Xer.
0: Yeah, it's. I don't. I. I. I don't like it. I know i I run the risk of sounding like a, a crotchety old lady, but I don't like the idea of consumption of media. Because I understand where it comes from, like this idea that we are ingesting this. Yes. I don't like the idea that it's so disconnected and so impersonal just like I don't like the idea of content creation because content creation versus like lived experiences are two vastly different things and I think right now people are leaning too much into content creation and like get ready with me and is like, <laughs> not really that when you have to set up a tripod and film it and edit it And like that's not real life so I don't like the idea of consumption because I think it takes away the pleasure of it I think it takes away the joy and like, the curiosity of it yeah unless and I don't think this is going to happen you can swing the idea of consumption to like sustenance and like so what are you getting your creative sustenance from what well, mm-hmm. maybe a better way to put it but consumption just sounds so capitalistic and yeah and just detached I, I don't like it
1: it's no longer talking about your influences like oh who has like made you think today you know they're not talking about that it's more like oh because if you consume certain writers or music you they you kind of like brand yourself too right like is it in keeping with your branding online and it's it's become to a point where where I think it was starting to happen, you know, when you investigated all those women or people who were who died alone and were never discovered, and I think it's I think that's connected. I think it's just like a progression from that, where we um think about people as avatars of yeah. who they are, and mm-hmm. so we never really think about them. Oh, I
0: should connect. I should reconnect with them. I should see if they're okay, right? Last week I was in Boston and I was doing a talk. And one of the things I was talking about was this idea of offering each other like the most basic human grace. And I was telling a story about how I've been out of town for the last two weeks. And my neighbor across the hall does not know my name. She just, she calls me 401 because that's my apartment. Oh my gosh. And she called me on my cell phone because the building intercom will let you buzz people in from your cell phone. And she said, hey, 401, did you get your package? I put it under your door. It was an envelope for you. And she was calling me because she knows, even though she doesn't know me, she knows that I don't leave my packages downstairs for more than a couple of minutes after they've been delivered. And so it was unusual to her that a week after the package had been delivered, it was still downstairs. So she made it a point to call me through the intercom just to make sure that I was okay. And I think that sometimes that's what we're missing is that it's easy to say, so and so's mm-hmm. post is up. So that means they're okay. Or so and so has a story that's been up within the last twenty four hours. So that means that they're okay. And there's this illusion again, a connection. And I think that that's what happens. Like when I mention Elisa Lamb and Geneva Chambers and Joyce yeah. Carol, is that they've been boiled down to like these ghosts of connection. And they're no longer human in some ways. And so it was important for me to talk about them in a way that was more human not only for myself because I can yeah. see myself going down that path, but just to give them a little bit of grace and humanity back.
1: yeah um especially because um, what I noticed the the common pattern about these women is that there wasn't social media for every one of those women, so I don't think it's only social media to blame but like they were good and and so were you when you wrote about yourself they were good at cultivating you know being the perfect workmate being the you know the perfect daughter the perfect sister to a point where people can hold on to that image and not really connect with you or not really know how to engage with you deeper than that right it becomes your um, protection or yeah your protection your facade right because you have all of these roiling boiling questions in you the loneliness that i want to you, to touch on right now because the definition of loneliness you you made such a good point in the book loneliness in terms of you're not clinically depressed yeah you know? you're, you don't have like totally debilitating anxiety mm-hmm. but you're lonely. And it's like, there's really nothing wrong with you. Yeah. So how would you like, how would you define loneliness if it's not a debilitating mental issue? Like, where does it fall?
0: I think it falls in just kind of, it's almost like a veil, at least for me. It's, I always feel like there's just like this kind of, thin haze over any connection that I have that I am there and I'm actively engaged but the whole of me is not there that there's always a part of me that is disconnected for a variety of reasons it could be fear it could be anxiety it could be remnants of my depression it could be a physical Reaction. I think it's just a veil that exists over everything, and so I think that's why sometimes it's very hard to explain to people what loneliness feels like because you're actively engaged, right? Like I talk to my mom and my dad and my sister every day, but I feel lonely pretty much every day. Yeah, and some days it's heavier than others. Some days it's it's debilitating. It really is. Like I could disappear and nobody would know. And part of that is what you alluded to a little while ago about this idea that like, if all people see of me and what all, and all that I've ever presented to somebody is I am the perfectly put together daughter, coworker, sister, friend, they have no idea what exists behind that mask. And so it's difficult to explain to people when you're actively in the world every day, but it really is just like a haze, a veil or everything that makes you just feel like you're never quite fully engaged with the world. Have expectations changed?
1: Is that what it is, is modern life? Because I can imagine my my mother's generation, you know, they're, they're we're Filipino mm-hmm. and with their generation, it feels like an extreme kind of community where everybody gets up on everybody's business. Yeah. Uh, nobody has, there's a very slight modicum of privacy, but not really but at at the same time no matter what the problems they're not lonely you know um we, we talk of loneliness as being single not in a relationship but that's not it either because there are single, perpetually single folks who grow old, single in the community, in my mother's generation, and they're never lonely in the way that I feel like we are. So what has it, what do you think it is? Is the, has the expectations changed? The stakes of the standards have changed? I'm trying to figure it out throughout your
0: book Yeah, I as think, well. I think some of it is a difference in generational like connection. One of the things that I kind of read a lot about and didn't really write too much about in the book was the idea of missing third spaces, which Mm. were spaces where people in prior generations had. like you had like a bar or- Yes. Like those are things that you went and you actively engage with your community. I think that there's a missing third space for a lot of people. So it's easier to go work home, work home, occasional outing with your friends. But like our lives are just- to such extremes now. So I think that's part of it is that there's a missing, like just community aspect. Um, I think part of it is again, connected to social media and internet culture where there is that illusion of connection where if you say like Facebook pops up and says, it's so-and-so's birthday and you say happy birthday, but it's different than actively planning or speaking to or engaging with that person face-to-face or voice-to-voice and so it gives you the idea that you're connected and so there's a loneliness there because even though there is contact it's the quality in the in the sometimes the quantity of contact is not the same I think part of it is we have such fast-paced lives that we don't have time to slow down to think Mm -hmm. about feel lonely and disconnected and I think that's why a lot of people now especially with like the Surgeon General's report and yeah things like I think the last three years really forced people to strip away all these illusions that we had about the idea of being connected and in a community with people and realizing we're really really alone (laughs) yeah fragmented so I think it's just a culmination of the world that we live in the absence of third space the absence of leisure time for a lot of people like that's a big one yeah. It's like, if you're tired because you go to work and you slave away your first thought, like I came home from work today and I was like, I'm going to eat this food standing up in the kitchen. And, <laughs> and at one point today, I'm going to like get in the bed and put the comforter over my head and yeah. just get from the world. So I think there's just a different world that we live in where community and connection is not a priority in the way that it used to be.
1: Yeah, there's a different kind of the acceleration gives a different kind of exhaustion too, I think. Um, But still, um, the way you define or the way you you tackle loneliness in your book, it's refreshing. I like it because it also doesn't prescribe one way or another, like, oh, here's how you overcome loneliness, or like, it's going to be the human condition that we'll feel lonely. And in your book, you don't treat loneliness as totally negative. No, you treat it as your as your personal experience. And sometimes it's bad because like you isolate yourself and and your your father recognized that and like um, brought you home. Um, But sometimes it could be a barometer. Yeah, that maybe, hey, it's time to reconnect or, you know, um, in, in what ways do you think can people in general, or especially writers in general, harness loneliness or see loneliness as a barometer?
0: I think for me, especially as a writer, I view loneliness as kind of a tool of sorts. And so I know what kind of work I am doing that needs a connection versus the work that I'm doing that I need isolation. So this particular book, I wrote alone. I didn't have anybody read it until it was fairly, like, fully flesh. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, during COVID, I knew that I needed connection. And one of the ways that I connected is I did writing sprints twice a week. And I wrote an entire novel during that, during community connection while we were on Zoom, because I needed that particular connection for that time. So for writers, I think it's knowing yourself and your writing process enough to know when you need connection versus when you need solitude mm-hmm. uh, and and a stepping away from this idea that writing is a lonely practice it can be it doesn't yes have to be. Uh, well solitude yeah the solitude is there but yeah it doesn't yeah, think, always have to be lonely. Right. I think sometimes people fall a little bit into that and they think that like oh you write alone and I'm like you can there are ways to alleviate that. You don't have to be in a group. You don't have to be, you could be in a duo and you might just do check-ins. You might realize that whatever you're writing is getting you so deep into the mire of emotion that you need to have somebody that's going to pull you out, even for a little bit of a little bit of time, so you can dive back into it. So finding where the solitude serves you, where the loneliness serves you, and then formulating a plan to get out of it once you realize that it's gotten a little bit too deep. And for me, that's writing sprints with other writers. It's having a, a critique partner who, even though we haven't been exchanging pages, she'll tweet about me, we'll email each other, we'll like hype each other up. And that's a way to break that solitude and get back to center before you go a little bit too far.
1: Yeah. And ironically, if you're a writer, you're happiest when you're writing. Yeah. <laughs> even when the subject matter is is difficult, right? I also like the part in your book where you tackle because i don't want to end this um, episode without mentioning this you mentioned a couple of times now that you wrote fanfic and you actually ran a fan fan page a fan community which you recently very reluctantly let go of the black panther uh fan community right and so like we're talking about like parasocial relationships and and all of that and one thing that struck me is is when you said you're imagining yourself with, you know, in, in different, in fantasy situations, but you still want to be yourself. You don't want to be another person. Yeah. So can you tell us more about that?
0: I think the the fanfic version of myself helps me display all the things that I am either actively working towards to show to the world or things that I'm not yet confident enough to show So usually if I'm writing myself into a fanfic or I'm writing a character just very clearly based on me, it's she's more confident in her abilities. She's more worldly. She's experienced things that I want to experience that I don't feel fully able to do right now. And so it's always me. It's just me having like this blank space to express things I've never let myself experience. And I've either tamped down or I missed the opportunity or I'm working up the courage to do this particular thing. And it's and it kind of harkens back to what I was saying about writing for people who feel invisible or voiceless. And, and it's like, it's that for me, it's a, a way to for me to voice what I feel. But I also will say that fan fiction not only helps me like as an individual, but it helped me as a writer Mm-hmm. Because there was a, I mentioned in the book, there's a long time that I just stopped writing anything, and there were times in 2018 to like 2021 that all I was writing for the most part, outside of when I the, the early iterations, this book, like I was writing almost 100 percent fanfic, nothing else. But what it did was it helped me learn how to engage with an audience, yeah, how to write things without a lie a, di- a dialogue without sacrificing tension. It allowed me to have a community of writers who were supportive, which is why I will forever say fanfic writers are some of the most underrated writers on the planet. I agree. (laughs) There's some amazing, amazing work, fanfiction-wise. But it really was a community, the same kind of literary community that I have for my quote unquote serious work was the same thing. But it really is a space for me to be able to test out alternate versions of myself as a way to bring those characteristics into the real world.
1: Yeah, yeah, I feel like it's, I wouldn't say extreme, but it's very edgy, uh, an edge version of fiction, where it feels more freeing, because you're not you don't Oh, it's not bound by the academic (laughs) definitions of what fiction is. So it's almost it's it's almost very edgy. And it gives you the freedom to experiment in a way that you wouldn't allow yourself if you were writing a straight up short story or a straight up like novella, right? And, and the idea of, and the, the, the parasocial relationship of fans to the actors or to the characters or to the musician or to the work, it's very real, even when it's Obviously, it's not real, like you don't have like a personal relationship with with, you know, Kevin Costner, for example, or, you know, but it's very real because of how it affects your life, Yeah. Um, how it um, enriches you, changes you, um, helps you get through tough times. When did parasocial relationships get coined? Did did you mention that in your book? Because
0: that was like, I I think you did. I think I'd say I only learned what they were in 2021. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. But it has to have existed. I think in an early iteration of the book, I think that it was originally coined in 1979, I believe it was. I think that's when it was first, 1978 or 1979. It was when it was first like named. Yeah. I think, though, is that I feel that fan fiction and like parasocial relationships and like fandom. Gets a bad rap because there are like, there's extremes in any kind of fandom, of course, wherever else. But I think that it gets a really bad rap. But I wish that people will look at it not the extreme cases, but just in general. I wish people that will look at it as like just a different way to engage with art. Um, like we see people are like, Oh, I've bought every Stephen King book and I've gone to all his author talks. I'm like, That's a parasocial relationship. It's more serious because it's a literary thing, but like that's just the same as somebody who goes and sees every single Marvel movie and goes to Comic-Con every year. Exactly. Same kind of engagement with art. It's just that it's not taken as seriously.
1: And obviously, there's a need. So that was where I was getting to. There's a need for it because otherwise it wouldn't exist. And I always wondered about it because, you know, you mentioned like New Kids on the Block. Oh, my God. I had... A long-term fantasy relationship with joey mcintyre and of course i knew this was not a real relationship but it was real when i was writing in my diary when i when i daydream and i feel like it's a very underrated coping mechanism or a way to or a way to find safe space mm-hmm. to let yourself be an extreme version or something like that So yeah, so I'm glad that you covered it in your book (laughs) because like, it is a very important like modern, I guess modern too, modern way to cope with loneliness. And then to close it out, I just wanted to um, talk about the last part of your book. Your last essay actually was "Old Lang Syne Mm -hmm. and it's a Scottish song that we sing every new year. You book ended it with new year. Can you talk us through why you decided to bookend it with
0: the new year? Part of it was, is I knew that the book wasn't going to be chronological order. So I needed a little bit of a vessel to hold the story. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I was thinking I wanted those two bookends to kind of represent a movement of time, even though everything in between wasn't chronological. So the very first essay, Say You Will Remember Me, that opens on New Year's 2020, headed into 2021, was much more like fearful it was I don't know where I'm heading in the next year I'm gonna die possibly because the pandemic is new and then the last essay ends with death mm-hmm. but I think a lot more emotional movement and hope that I'm like contemplating going back home I even like small little things in that final essay where I allowed myself to close the obituary like it's kind of like an ending and kind of like of oh, this is what it is and I know that I'm moving forward even though I don't know what's on the other end of this like path. So I wanted to find a way to bookend the story and show some kind of emotional movement without everything in between having to be chronological.
1: Yeah, and I noticed that in the third part you talk about relatives dying, your aunt dying, your grandmother dying, but it's the tone is hopeful <laughs> in a in a way that seems odd, but feels very natural, of course, for the progression of the book. Do you think that because you talked in the in the beginning about fearing your own death and not leaving your mark, not having experienced like a really good intimate relationship? And then the is the third part about putting it in perspective and seeing yourselves
0: in the life of those who have passed of those before you? Part of it, I think that's why I included a little bit about my grandmother's journal. Mm-hmm. And then one of the journal entries of mine that I included in the book that says that, well, Aunt Mary who had passed in 20, said that I had a life that she wished she would have had. Yeah. But the last essay, the last two essays specifically is looking at, I still have like the ability to live. I still have the ability to change. I still have the ability to reconnect. And now that I recognize all the decisions that I made that make me get to this loneliness, now what decisions am I going to make to like have the best connected life, the best family life? And how am I going to step into the roles that I, I should be assuming now that this other generation has begun to pass? And so I think that's why there's a little bit of hope there, but there's also no resolution. Yeah. I am still here in Philadelphia. I yeah. still don't know if and when I'm going to get home and- and I still feel lonely, but yes. really, the idea of like I now recognize the decisions that I've made, and now I have to make decisions to write this course. And there's a beauty in that open endedness that
1: it makes it feel finished, ironically. But there's a beauty to the open endedness because that's it mimics life. Mm-hmm. I every time, even in your most like fulfilled or satisfied uh, moments. Life feels open-ended until you pass away, of course. And so I I like how, how that is mirrored or expressed in the book. Really wonderful work. Thank you for thinking about making this a book, Athena. So before we go, I have one last question, which we ask all our guests. And it's about why do we need to write? Like, What is the use of writing? That is the the actual question. What do you think is the use of art or the use
0: of writing? I think it is a lens to see the world and to memorialize the things that are important to you. I think that it's both a way to capture things that you wanna share. And I think it's a way to also capture things that you wanna hold close.
1: Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time and congratulations on this uh, momentous book. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Talking Writing Podcast. We're an independent literary site and nonprofit organization based in the Boston area, but with contributors from around the world. Since our founding in 2010, We've relied on donations to keep publishing and podcasting. To donate to TW, you can use the donate button on the RSS.com page of this podcast or visit TalkingWriting.com donate. And of course, feel free to drop us a line at editor at TalkingWriting.com.